Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm really excited about the guest we have for you. His name is Griff Green. He goes way back in the Ethereum community. Uh, he's probably one of the most important influential people uh, outside of the co-founders. He was one of the first uh, employees at Slocket and had played a, a pivotal role in the early DAO controversy and um, you know, kind of shenanigans. In the book I read about Ethereum, I called him the mayor of Ethereum. And at the time, I think that was absolutely correct. And I'm going to get a, get a check-in on with Griff about how he feels about that now as the community has grown so much since 2016. Griff, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Uh, how are you? I'm fantastic. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the very, very kind intro. Yeah. Definitely not the mayor of Ethereum anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think at one time you were. I, I really do feel that way. And, and we'll get on to that. But um, are you down in Costa Rica at the moment? Yeah, yeah, just enjoying life in uh, Central America. It's uh, it's pretty nice down here. Working on too many projects all the time. Yeah, we'll we'll, um, we'll definitely get into Giveth uh, as well uh, later in in the episode. But you know, as I love to do here, um, I'd love to kind of go back and just start with you and where you came from. Uh, I, I know a lot about you because you were a central character in my book, and I've written a lot about you in other mediums. But for listeners who don't know, let's just go through it again. And so I'm, I might guide you a little bit, or like I'd let you know I don't. You don't need any help um, with giving good quotes and and telling awesome stories. But let's let's go back. I know that um, I believe you you grew up in Seattle, Washington. Yeah, I grew up in Washington State, kind of bouncing back and forth between Spokane and Seattle. So my dad lived in Seattle, my mom lived in Spokane, and then did a little bouncing back and forth. And, um, but mostly I was in Spokane, like that's where my grade schools and high schools were. And then I moved to Seattle, like more formally when uh, I went to college, went to University of Washington and got a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. And also uh, spent a lot of time, like kind of like my, my entry to crypto is, is kind of fun. It's kind of interesting because it, it's, it's a long story, of course, and maybe for a lot of people it is, but um I spent let's, a lot uh, of let's let's yeah. let's take that long story and let's go through it. Like, what were you what were you like as a kid? What what um, a were kid? you good at school? Were you into sports? What was what was Griff Green like as an eight year old? You know, I was never good at sports or really good at school until college. I got better at school as things got harder. I always had trouble doing my homework. You know, I never uh, I was never good at doing homework. I'm still not good at doing homework. Um, you bored by it, or you just didn't want to put the time in. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I was always really good at tests. Like, so I didn't have to do the homework, you know, it's just like, uh, I don't know. 
uh, I don't know why, I, I, you know, as, why did we do things as a kid? I have no idea why I was these ways, but yeah. It's hard, man. With my two kids, like I, I've read these studies that show that homework doesn't help kids at all in school. And I'm still in the position of like, no, you got to do your homework. It's like, kind of <laughs> like, you know, I feel like Two-Face or something, you know, like, just like, yeah, nah, I don't know. I mean, you got to play the game for the, with the system that you're in. And maybe this is part of the thing is I was never down to play the game. You know, I was never into playing the game that the system wanted me to play. I was always trying to, you know, how can I like, how can I play my own game above the game, the meta game? Yeah. And uh, even as a kid, I guess. Do you think there was something, did something happen to you as a kid that kind of showed you that you shouldn't play the game? Or is that just part of your innate personality, do you think? No, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think I'm a systems thinker, you know, and, and I always have been. And I've always kind of looked at things and been like, okay, this is how it works. Like trying to figure out how does it work? Like figure out how it works and like that's kind of dumb and then like <laughs> how do you how, like like do i really need to do homework nah, nah no obviously not well isn't uh, that why you're a good test taker probably because you figure out like this is how you take a test i figured it out yeah. and now not necessarily this is dumb but i'm going to do well on this test because i know how it works yeah what is it what do the teachers actually want me what are the teachers going to put on the test uh, i should probably figure that out you know and then, and then, yeah, play those games. And I was always good at tests. And I, I do learn things pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I used to play a lot of basketball. Uh, there's a, in Spokane, there's like the largest three-on-three -three basketball tournament that, uh, that uh, in the world. And it's like called Hoop Fest where they shut down the streets. And, and so my, uh, I always had a Hoop Fest team. Yeah. you know with either friends or my brothers and my family like throughout the years different different friend groups uh came together and and uh always find it a, a time to play in that and how did you, know, you do uh <laughs> you know again it's about working the system right so <laughs> in hoop fest it's kind of funny because they have uh you get a shirt if you're first place second place or 13th place really it's like <laughs> and so uh because it's like double elimination but you're guaranteed three games so if you lose your first two games then all the the four teams in the, in the 16 team bracket the four teams that lose their first two games would go into consolation bracket and they would win a shirt to be king of the losers right <laughs> and so um it's nice to go out with a win so usually we would throw our first two games and and then uh have because i mean i've i've done it the other way too where it's like you know, you play, and if you win every game, then you play like six or seven basketball games, you know, yeah. uh, in, in the weekend. Uh, if you lose one of those games, it's like you have to play like 11. Like one time we we, lost, we won our first game and lost our second game, and um, we were screwed. Uh, it was like we just had to play, I think we played six games on the first day. Wow. And we, you know, and then we, and then we had to play like another four uh, on the second day. And when we got to the, we actually made it to the finals. We got the finalist shirt, right? Yeah. But we we're so destroyed and yeah. we would have had to beat the, the other team twice, you know? <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, no, never, <laughs> never again. Never, never. We never win the first two games, okay? We're there to have fun. Let's go out with some wins. Let the other 12 teams like duke it out to see who's best. Let's just go try to be the king of the losers, yeah, <laughs> you know? And, and it's, it, yeah, it, it was really, in the end of the day, you want the t-shirt, right? 
and and it's the best shirts yeah it's always funny you know it's like you didn't win you know it your friends know it you know (laughs) you know so uh yeah, it was, those are good times for Sounds sure. Sounds like an NFT today. It would be, like, you know, three of three or something. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Didn't you play that sometimes with your brothers and your dad? Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a nice, there's kind of a famous picture. Uh, I mean, we were playing it every year until COVID uh, hit and, you know, blah, 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 got shut down. And, and I, I actually think this is the first year that it's going and I'm not going to play. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, I, and, and there's a really nice picture of me and my family because I ordered Dow shirts to, uh, to be like our team t-shirt, but it was before the hack and Hoopfest happened like right after the hack. And so, uh, we, it was like the Dow in community we trust. No, no, sorry. In, in code, we trust. Oh, God. <laughs> we trust no one of course in spokane had a clue what that didn't make anyone laugh no one no one got it right right uh, no one thought it was funny or anything but i already bought the shirts and it was like our team t-shirt you know so please we tell me you it. still have those yeah yeah, yeah. actually yeah and, and i saw Kristoff wearing it the other day too really now there were awesome. probably only like 30 of those ever made right yeah, and we'll get into why that's kind of ironic in code we trust in, in a little bit, um, and the Dow. But basketball was like a really big influence on you. And um, tell me about like you were also a huge um, Seattle SuperSonics fan in the NBA, and I think that had a rather large effect on you and the tra- kind of the trajectory that your life would take. Definitely. I would say that's kind of what really got me into crypto indirectly, of course. Strange way. It was an NBA basketball team that got you into crypto. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have probably never even heard of the Seattle Supersonics because they don't exist anymore. Right. Uh, This was in like 2007 uh, ish, maybe 2006. I can't remember exactly. But uh, the basketball team was bought by this guy in Oklahoma City. And the guy in Oklahoma, everyone who was really following and paying attention knew he wanted to bring a team to Oklahoma City. Eventually he did. It was called, now CL Supersonics are called the Oklahoma City um, Thunder, who have gone to the finals. Maybe they won a championship. I can't remember. Probably not. I haven't been following so closely. I know they made it to the finals a couple of times. And uh, Kevin Durant and uh, a couple other other like really big star players were drafted by CL Supersonics while I was fighting to save the team. So uh, we started this community group called Save Our Sonics. It was originally called Save Our Sonics and Storm, but we saved the storm. Uh, you know, luckily Oklahoma City is not like into the WNBA. So, uh, so we were able to find people who would buy in Seattle Storm and Seattle Storm is now, I mean, Sue Bird has made that uh, a really a, a major piece of the WNBA. Uh, but uh, the Seattle Supersonics for two years, we're kind of in this limbo where it's like the guy's like, oh, yeah, I want to buy an arena in Seattle. It's the gateway to Asia. But everyone, no one trusted him. I didn't trust him. And and so we were fighting. Uh, we actually found a court. We started a court case because when um, years before the, the team was bought, there was a uh, there was an upgrade of the key arena where they played. And in that upgrade, they had a contract that says uh, they have to play for 15 years. And it only been 13 years. They had to play for 15 years in the key arena. 
Okay. It was a, it was a special clause, and and so I was like, well, clearly they can't leave. You know, that was what we found. It was like, yes, we yeah. got them. They can't leave. You know, um, they, <laughs> and you guys are just a grassroots organization. You're doing this on your spare time, right? You've got other things yeah. in your life, and you're just trying to keep your hometown basketball team from leaving. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, uh, it's, I started uh, working in this org as a when I was in chemical engineering school at UW, and uh, I and stayed in it while I graduated. And event, I took the summer off to really focus on it. But then I also uh, started working for for a couple of years and maintained in in this org, right? Yeah. Um, and so when we actually had this court case, and I helped organize like a three thousand person rally in front of the court. Uh, in front of, and we got Gary Payton and Sean Kemp, old like uh, like big time basketball stars, to come to come to the rally. I got to, which was cool because I got to meet them and hang out with them, right? <laughs> and uh, and so uh, it was it was a huge success. Like the court case was was a slam dunk. Everything was easy. And then the judge was going to give the ruling, and it was like we had a party planned, you know, like da da da. But the day the judge is going to give the ruling, before the ruling, like a couple hours before the judge is going to give the ruling, the mayor held a press conference and basically signed the team away and said, hey, like, you know, the, the guy in Oklahoma City, he's going to give me six, he's going to give the city $60 million and more if we don't get a basketball team in five years, you know, and da, da, da. He had this whole agreement and just with one stroke of the pen, the mayor kind of like undid all the good work that this grassroots organization had started you know and 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 it was just like what the fuck what what are you kidding me like is this real like do we really not have any power some guy like so many people and it's like yeah i was a leader in that group i wasn't the leader uh just, just college kid you know but uh the i was i was one of the leaders i was like general of the fans and got everyone motivated you know signing petitions <laughs> and stuff at the games um but like, yeah, it was it was atrocious to me that just a mayor could just change every, you know, make our years of work just worthless. Yeah, at the 11th hour, no less. Did What happened with the court case? Was it decided? No, that's the thing. The, the judge never gave a ruling because, because the, it was no, it was, Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, so that obviously, like you were kind of hinting at it, it like, how can we trust in institutions like this when somebody, you know, kind of unilaterally can come in and, and make such a big decision um, against all of this public will? Yeah. And, and so I just kind of, you know, I was already leaning an anarchist leaning kind of person, you know, uh, I was always voting for the edges, whether it's the extreme like Green Party candidate or the Libertarian candidate. Uh, I don't care, but I never voted in the middle, you know. Yeah. Uh, after this, I never voted again. Uh, I just, you know, it's like the, this whole game is is rigged and I don't want, you know, I'm sure like I would my mind would be blown if this was just an honest deal. You know, if if um, Clay Bennett, who's the guy who's buying the Seattle Supersonics, if he didn't somehow bribe Mayor Nichols, you know, or somehow there was some kind of behind the scenes thing happening. That would be a huge surprise to me if if I could ever know one way or another. Uh, so, you know, I was just like, I'm done with this. And eventually, like, uh, layoffs came around in 2009, uh, you know, because of the whole, like, I was a chemical engineer designing power plants around the world. Like, uh, the main one I was working on was in Abu Dhabi. And it, 
you know, it was like global recession. We had so, a financial crisis had hit and yeah. everybody was taking it. You know. Yeah. So I, I went into my, uh, uh, my, I never really spent money, you know, I've never been uh, an, like a big money spender guy. So I went into my boss's office is like, Hey, you know, I don't have like a house payment or a car payment. I don't have any kids. Like I'm just saying, if you're going to lay people off, like people with kids should probably keep their jobs. Right. Yeah. You know? And, and so uh, I actually basically asked to be laid off without saying it. Cause I didn't want to put him in a weird spot. And then, uh, yeah, so I got laid off and it was great. I was making like 630 bucks a week to not work. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And yeah. so that was cool. And then uh, I really just, you know, kind of like sold everything I owned and and left left the world behind. Uh, got bought a van, went to Burning Man for the first time. And uh, just- what, what year was that? That was your first one? Uh, 2011. 2011. Okay. Yeah. So it's I funny, have, man. When I went to Bloomberg and said, Hey, um, you know, if you guys are looking to lay off people, maybe I could be one of them. They're like, no, no, you're not, you're staying. <laughs> oh no. Damn. So I had to quit a couple months later. Oh, damn. <laughs> I got, I, I got nothing, but uh, <laughs> good for you. All right. So yeah. All right. So now you're kind of like free and you're like, got a van, you're going to burning man. And what are you thinking? Like, how are you supporting yourself? And like, what are you thinking of like economics and, and things after kind of going through the experiences that we just talked about? Even, even before the Save Our Sonics thing, I already hated the banks. And so I was, uh, I mean, this, that put me on, like, uh, made me go to another path. So like, while I was still working, but after the Save Our Sonics thing, I'm like, I'm just going to exit the system. I actually just ran, um, I just like put all my money into uh, gold and silver. Mm -hmm. And eventually when I, you know, when I could, I even stopped having a bank account for a while and uh, just lived off of physical gold and silver. There's a mint or there was a mint. It's not there anymore, but there was a mint in Tacoma, south of Seattle. Yeah. So I would drive down there once in a while and just like take money on my bank account, go to the mint, buy some gold and silver. And so you can and, literally just walk in there and be like, hi, I'd like to buy a gold yeah. bar. Here's $9,800, wow. you know, can't be $10,000. Wow. Uh, no name or anything. Just here's nine, here's $9,800. What can I get? Okay. Let's finish that off with a couple silver dimes and we're good. You know? Wow. Uh, that, that's so untraceable. That's amazing. Like people think that crypto is so, you know, nefarious, but here you are like walking into the mint with cash and walking yeah. out with physical precious metals with absolutely no transaction record at all. Yeah, exactly. It was great. And, and yeah. And, uh, and so eventually I even, I, I actually stored that with a friend, another gold bug friend, libertarian friend of mine who, uh, uh, yeah, we, we both campaigned for Ron Paul in 20, 2008, actually uh -huh. together. And uh, yeah, so he would just, anytime I needed money, um, uh, first he was depositing in my bank account. Eventually I'm just like, I'm exiting the bank accounts, you know? And, uh, and so then eventually he would just actually store my gold under his bed. And when I, I, I'd send him a text or something and be like, hey, can I get, can you wire me like a thousand dollars? And yeah. Then I'd be in Cambodia or in Ecuador or Colombia or wherever I was, you know, uh, and he would just wire the money. Wow. So are we in 
Like so, when so I was in the I was in the states in 2011, roaming around, and then I went to South America, Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia, kind of bouncing around there for most of 2011, or sorry, most of 2012 until the summer. After 2011, I never missed another Burning Man, uh, I except for the last two years, the COVID years, right? Yeah. But um, so then I went uh, to Burning Man in the summer. Stayed in, stayed in the States a little bit after Burning Man and then went to India and Thailand and um, Cam Cambodia and, and the whole Southeast Asia circuit. Um, and so by and, this point, the Bitcoin white paper had been out for a while. When, when did you first come across it or Bitcoin um, in general? I had heard about Bitcoin when it was like $5. I don't know when that was, maybe 2011 or something. And I had followed it and I even tried to buy some, but it was like, you had to wire money to Japan to Mount Gox. Mount Gox, right. I, was, I wasn't into that. I was like, that's kind of the antithesis of what I'm trying to do here. So, um, so yeah, I never got any until I was in Thailand in 2013. And uh, a friend of mine opened a Coinbase account. Uh, he figured it out because of Silk Road, right? Uh, that, that, that will motivate people. And so he was able to, uh, I was like, you got, you figured out Bitcoin? Amazing. Can I trade you some gold and silver for Bitcoin? Right. So I traded him $3,000 worth of gold and silver and got uh, like $3,000 worth of Bitcoin. And it was right after. So I was, yeah, we were watching Bitcoin go up and up and up in April, 2013 for the Cyprus thing. You know, at least that was the story yeah. at the time was Cyprus. And so we watched it go up to 250. He's like, oh my God, I made so much money because he bought some just to buy drugs on Silk Road. And he's like, oh my God, I just made so much money. This is crazy. I'm going to go like, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to like go da 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 da, right? Uh, I'm going to go on a trip. And then like next day, it just drops to $50, $250 to $50. And he's just like, oh my God, what happened? Yeah. You know? And so right after that is when I actually made this trade, right? Because okay. he bought in at like $20 or $30 for Bitcoin and watched it go. Uh, and so when it got down to 80, I'm like, I'm buying. Yeah. And so I, I bought, he bought over the, like two days for me a couple times and the average price was like $86. So that's hilarious fine. that like that, that euphoria, like there's actually today, there's a TV commercial on here in the States. I can't remember if it's Coinbase or FTX. But it's exactly that. Like, it's this guy. He's like, I'm a millionaire. And then it's like, I, well, I've got nothing. And then I'm a millionaire. And like, I've, I've got nothing. And it shows him, like, quitting his job and then going back and getting his job. And, and like, oh, I mean, yeah, it's just anybody who's followed this for, for any bit of time knows that that's the cycle. But it's, it's great to know that it goes way back to, like, 2013 like that, like you were just saying. Oh, um, yeah. And, of course, before that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... And then all the, so I'll be like, so then you must have like kind of cottoned on to the idea that like, oh my God, this Bitcoin, it's um, digital. I, I can have this on my phone. I don't need these metal bars, like these precious metal, like physical things anymore. Is that sort of like what happened next? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is, this is a lot easier than gold and silver, you know, it's just yeah. way easier. And it was also like, you know, um, I was interested in it and I thought it was cool but I didn't understand the details, right? So, and, and for context, I bought uh, half Bitcoin. Oh, so he sent it all to me in a BTCE account. And then I left half in Bitcoin and I spent, put the other half into a bunch of other random coins, right? Just to diversify. 
Yeah. And I did way better on all the altcoins. Uh, and so like December, you know, April 2013, uh, it went up to 250 down to like 50 and settled at about 100 for a while for a few months and then uh, went up to 1000 at the end of the year. And uh, I had kind of been running low on money, not out of money, but low. And so I was already starting to apply for other jobs like I was going to my thought was uh, I went to Australia. Uh, to finish on my trip, which was really expensive at the time, 2013. It's really expensive there. And it was very hard. Uh, and I spent way too much money there. And so I was like, well, but you know what? I could get paid really well in Australia as a chemical engineer. And I heard about some algae farms that I could work at. And I was, so I was applying for jobs. I did some algae research in college and stuff. Uh, and then also with my um, like experiences of building power plants, I thought, okay, I could like combine these two and we could do biofuel algae and stuff like that. Yeah. And there were all sorts of cool places in Australia to do that work. So uh, I was applying for jobs with that. And then Bitcoin went from, you know, uh, $150 to $1,000 in about a month uh, or something like that. And I was like, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I can live off of this for two years. You know, yeah. I, I mean, three grand went to 25 grand and yeah. I lived. So I, I could, I could, I don't need, I don't need. So were job. you spending, could you spend your Bitcoin then, or did you have to sell it off and then use that money to, to live? Um, I was actually working as a Thai massage ther a therapist. So I learned Thai massage in Thailand. And so I was working uh, as a Thai masseuse in Beverly Hills and making decent money doing that. So I didn't need to, um, sell crypto. Okay. Uh, to live. I, I started working in LA, um, but my wrists were hurting, you know, like, uh, yeah. so I, that's why I started applying for chemical engineering jobs. I, I did start buying and selling a lot after it went up to a thousand though. And I got a local Bitcoins account and I just started like do buying and selling in LA. And eventually I basically, my, my girlfriend at the time was not very um, excited about how much time I'm spending obsessed with Bitcoin because I was obsessed I was in a like a few state like I was just like oh my god because everything I read was so cool yeah. you know at the time there was only Bitcoin I mean there were other cryptos but all the conversation was Bitcoin there wasn't Ethereum there were, all the people who are talking about the cool stuff Ethereum can do were talking about doing it with Bitcoin you know yeah. there wasn't this block block reward or, or what is, block size debates or anything like that uh, this is all before that. So it was like, oh, my God, the, the crypto anarchist dream, you know, I want right. in. Right, right, and right. Uh, so I was obsessed. And uh, but eventually, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend was kind of jealous of Bitcoin. So I just I quit. Uh, I, I We broke up and I just went to Ecuador, which is one of my favorite spots that I travel to. It's like I'm going to be the Andreas Antonopoulos of Ecuador. I'm going to bring Bitcoin here and be like the evangelist for Bitcoin. Right. Yeah, um, maybe I'll start an exchange or something. I don't know, uh, but so yeah. So then I went to Ecuador in 2014. And I also started to figure out like how can I get my foot in the door here. You know, uh, I'm a pretty smart guy, and maybe I could like get a degree or so. I I saw the first um, opportunity to get a digital currency degree. Yeah, and so I actually applied to that master's program and um, ended up like working on a master's degree for digital currencies. And, and you know, eventually at a funny time, I actually collected that degree and I, I got the first degree ever in, in digital currencies. Yeah, and you're, 
I guess your thesis um, kind of leads us into the next chapter of your life because you were writing about decentralized autonomous corporations as they were called then, yeah. right? DAX, um, not DAOs as people might know, de decentralized autonomous organizations. And if I'm not wrong, I think that's what Vitalik referenced in his first white paper about Ethereum when he called it a DAC um, because the terminology hadn't kind of coalesced yet. And I guess somebody probably realized like, hey, um, we're not trying to make corporations here. We're trying to do something new. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's get rid of that. Um, but yeah, like, tell me more about that. Like what, um, and, and just maybe tell our listeners, like in a nutshell, like what a, what a DAO is and like what, what in theory it's supposed to be. Sure. I mean, a, a DAO in theory is really just, I mean, man, there's not a clear definition for these things. This is the biggest problem with decentralization is then when there's no hierarchy, there's no one to say the, be the authority that says this is what a DAO is. Yeah. But I like to say a DAO is just, uh, a group of people who uh, have are, are coordinating with smart contracts instead of legal contracts. So normally in a company, you have like a legal contract uh, and that will hold people accountable. But with a DAO, you're not within the jurisdiction of a government generally. Uh, so you are kind of like using other contracts, smart contracts that are effectively within the jurisdiction of the blockchain that you're on. Mm -hmm. So now you're in this like weird, you know, the, the legal, the, the, and unfortunately you're always on standing on some piece of land that's owned by a government, right? Uh, they might say, oh yeah, you own it. But if you pay property taxes, are you, are you just renting it really? You know, so like uh, the government kind of says you're in my land and I'm going to impose my laws on you anyway, but at least within this DAO, the government can't do anything. The government can't take the money out of the DAO. The DAO doesn't have a bank account to freeze. You know, the DAO is uh, ha, can is autonomous because it can hold its own money. Autonomous does not mean automated. You know, there's like autonomous vehicles, and that's really a misnomer. Just the whole phrase doesn't make sense. Uh, autonomous is more like sovereignty. It's like I I am resistant to outside forces make decisions internally. So DAOs are decentralized as in there's no central point of failure. They're autonomous as in they're sovereign. Uh, outside forces can't affect the DAO and, uh, and they're organized. They have some kind of structure, usually through smart contracts. So that's, that's how I would define a DAO. And, and I, was, I was working on a, a DAO that would create bikes all around the world. So uh, that was kind of my thesis, or uh, it was really just a class project uh, to write a white paper. And I wanted to, um, yeah, I, I was fully nomadic and I just didn't want to own things. I never really like owning things. Yeah. So uh, I thought, well, how do we, I just want access to things. And maybe we could create like uh, uh, the, the network, the DAO itself kind of owns these bicycles right and then it will issue its own currency to reward people who add bikes to the network and and so like uh it was kind of a cool design because you you'd put bikes in in a spot and if there are no bicycles within like you know uh, if there are no other bicycles within a 20 mile radius then you would get um like a lot of tokens locked within your bike yeah and and uh, the kind of like vesting and then um, as more bikes came in, they would get less and less. So the first bike would get a lot of tokens locked behind it and the next bikes would get less. Yeah, so you're incentivizing the bikes to be spread around in areas where they're not 
exactly. Yeah. But they only get unlocked upon use. Yeah. So if someone uses it, then like they have to pay to use the bike. But then uh, the person collects the payments. The person who is stewarding the bike, they don't own the bike anymore. The network owns the bike. Now they're stewarding the bike and they would collect the rent and some tokens, right? Uh, and, and so that was the way that I was the design for bootstrapping it. And anyway, I, I wrote this white paper and, uh, you know, once I got like a year in, it was like 2015, I think uh, Burning Man, before and after Burning Man in the summer, I, um, I, I was traveling through Central America at the time and like Guatemala and all these things and ended up back in Ecuador. And then I went back to the States and I was like, you know, I should really try to, before Burning Man, I like, I got to find all of these, like who who's doing sharing economy stuff in crypto. Yeah. I want to get an internship because like, I, I figured out that the class, the, the degree I was taking really wasn't worth its salt. Like it was okay. It was, it was nice. Like I learned a lot of really strong fundamentals that helped me throughout my crypto career, of course, but like I wanted to be able to build these things. And so I talked to a friend of mine who's a dev and I was like, hey, should I take some coding boot camps and stuff? He's like, dude, if you're too old, I was like 30, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you're too old. There's like 19 year olds that are going to code the hell out of you. Like you'll never be able to be as good as them. And you're really extroverted and, and interesting. You should be a manager. You should like just go get an internship somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so that was my mission. I'm going to get an internship. I'm just going to work for free. Uh, and provide value, you know, to to uh, someone doing sharing economy crypto. And the only group I could find at the time was Slocket. Yeah. And so I sent them emails like every week, you know. And I, I had this great video of me explaining the um, the sharing economy for bikes. And eventually, uh, after Burning Man, Christoph Jens, who started Slocket. Uh, he saw the video. He actually opened that email and saw the video and was like, yeah, sure. You know, we need to build a community. This guy seems fun. And yeah. I, I had experience building the community of Save Our Sonics, right? right. So I was a community organizer with experience uh, in, in IRL, but still like, uh, and so I, I opened this, the Slack and started building the crypto community at uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's fascinating. Like I was hinting at earlier that this is just like kind of already part of your DNA and part of like what you do. And then you found this community that needed like community building. And and for folks who don't know, like Slocket was, so Christoph Jentz was um, previously, he had been like really important in the Ethereum community. Um, he was kind of like the guy that would try to break your code um, when they were basically developing the different clients on on the different um, in the different programming languages, and Christoph knew it so well that he could like make sure that your code was like secure and good, and they would all work together and talk to each other. And then he broke off and created Slocket, which um, had a very similar idea to yours, where but it was like a smart lock, so that's the S lock, right? Where it would be a lock connected to the Ethereum blockchain you could send it some ether and unlock that lock for like an hour. So maybe it's a lock on a bike in Amsterdam, or maybe it's a lock on an apartment in Paris for an evening, you know? And so that, that was his idea. And, and then as like it, at this point, it, Ethereum was like less than a year old and everybody needed money to develop their projects. And, and Christoph was going through that same process. 
and he so he he was like trying to think about how do we raise money um, to to like create the Slocket system, and he kind of had a light bulb moment where he's like, well, everybody needs this money, so why don't we just all pool our resources together, and then I'm gonna let you take it from there, and that's like where the DAO was was created. Yeah, I mean, in the end, the DAO was really we thought it would be. You know, it was an autonomous entity, so it could do whatever we wanted. But our goal was that it would be like the manager of the sharing economy ecosystem. We 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 dubbed, and it's actually I dubbed the term universal sharing economy, right? And that's what we wanted to create: uh, the universal sharing network. Uh, and and the universal sharing network would have an economy that was governed by the DAO, and and uh, the DAO would because, you know we create smart locks and lockers, someone's going to put weed in a locker and it's going to be breaking the rules, you know? So like, uh, who's, who's going to be liable for that? And honestly, we were a team of five, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it was me, uh, Chris, Christoph and his brother, Simon and left Harris and, uh, Stefan Twal, uh, Stefan and, and the brothers were the founders. And then I was the first employee left Terrace came like a month later and that was the team. And, uh, we weren't getting paid. Uh, well, I wasn't getting paid. Uh, I never, I didn't get paid the whole time, actually. <laughs> um, uh, I got paid many years later, uh, much less than it would have been in Ether. It was denominated in, in euros. So I did end up getting paid like four years later. But um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so yeah, we, we were staying lean. And, and the idea was, hey, let's do a crowdfund, but let's make it a DAO. Like, this is what we're here to do on Ethereum, right? And it really incited the, uh, the whole Ethereum community. Everyone yeah. was excited about the DAO. And, you know, it was- Because here was like, your, the big idea yeah. here was like, instead of everybody individually trying to raise money, like let's, everybody can pitch, like can buy into the DAO and, and have their Ether in the DAO. And then once you have DAO tokens in return for your Ether, you can then submit an idea of like, oh, here's my project, here's my startup. And the other members of the DAO would vote on it and like say, yeah, that, that's a great project. Let's fund it. So that yeah. like you didn't have to do, say, a hundred different fundraisers. You could all kind of do it through the DAO. And it was all sort of like that that was the main mission of it. Yeah. And and for, for us, we were like, you know, we didn't even we called it the DAO because we said we didn't want to name the DAO. The DAO yeah. should name itself. Right. And we didn't want to be prescription prescriptive. Like it was kind of like assumed by us that the DAO would want to fund the universal sharing networks. We're building a community and we're talking about the universal sharing network. We're saying how great this thing is going to be. Uh, you know, drones are going to be getting you a power drill out of a locker and bring it to you when you need it just by like from your phone, you know? Uh, and you just you'd be like, oh, I'll just go make a make dinner and then come back. Oh, I got my power drill. Okay. You know, um, and uh, that was kind of the dream, but and we had we had some really cool projects, but uh, and so we thought we thought that would be what the DAO focused on, but in the end, the community was like, yeah, Universal Sharing Network, whatever. The DAO is cool, you know. Everyone got excited about the DAO, and the community kind of took a mind of its own. Like we can do all sorts of things with this DAO. Yeah. It really wasn't our call. It wasn't our thought that they would do lots of things. It was our what we thought was that the with the DAO, the the main DAO, the starter DAO would would follow us with the universal sharing network. And then um, people who don't like the direction, they could fork off, they could split the DAO and build another sub DAO and do other things. 
we kind of designed the DAO to be like the Genesis DAO. Uh, I thought the name might be Genesis DAO eventually because it was like the design of the DAO was that it would splinter and fragment into lots of small DAOs. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I know that you guys never got around to naming it, but did you have like, like Genesis DAO? Were there other names you were kicking around or? Uh, I really like chapter 57 uh, because there's this amazing, um, there, let me see if I can pull it up. There's this amazing person. Uh, in, in, so another thing that I- Name I when think, you go into bankruptcy or? <laughs> that's that's true. It's also a, a hot sauce, I think, but it's, <laughs> it's really from the Dao De Ching or not hot sauce, barbecue sauce. Um, but um, it's from the Dao De Ching. There's like, um, uh, the, one of the things that I, I feel like I pushed really hard during the Dao days was to call it the Dao and not DAO. At the time, it was kind of like lots of people said DAO and lots of people said DAO. And I really liked DAO because I'm a big fan of Lao Tzu's uh, Dao De Ching. Uh, I think the Dao De Ching is great. And um, there's this one chapter called Chapter 57, which I'll read really quick. It's you know a chapter in the Dao De Ching is like 100 words. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I, I thought it really summarized like kind of the move, the crypto anarchist movement. Uh, if you want to be a great leader, you must learn to follow the Tao. Stop trying to control. Let go of fixed plans and concepts, and the world will govern itself. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. The more subsidies you have, the less self-reliant people will be. Therefore, the master says, I let go of the law, and people become honest. I let go of economics and people become prosperous. I let go of religion and people become serene. I let go of all desire for the common good and the good becomes common as grass. You know, and, and it, it's just really beautiful. It's just saying, listen, don't stop trying to control. The people will make the world be what they want it to be. Yeah. And, and I thought that that really summarized the, the like mission of the Tao itself to yeah. just like be something, you know? Uh, whatever it turns out to be bottom up. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and circling back to what you had, like how you'd been burned by politics and bureaucracy with the supersonics kind of situation. This, this was probably, you might not have known it at the time, but it sounds like this was like exactly what you were hoping for. Something yeah. governed by the people where the people actually had the power and some mayor couldn't come in at the last minute and totally undo two years of work. Yeah, I mean, there were only five of us, so it's nice. I had a voice, you know, we we directed this together, you know, yeah. as a team uh, to of what the DAO needed to be. So, um, yeah, it was it was really fun. And and yeah, and it really did feel like, you know, I, I didn't sleep, man. I was like I was so I was working 80 hour weeks uh, at least and just just ex so excited. I didn't need to do anything else. Uh, lost another girlfriend in this one, you know, uh, <laughs> I ended up, yeah. And yeah, I did. I ended up breaking up with this girlfriend as well and going to Germany to, uh, to like work with work on the Dow and socket, uh, right after we started raising crazy amounts of money. I, mean, was, yeah. I was in Seattle, uh, at the start of the launch. Um, this is, uh, April, end of April, and most of May, like all of May, we were doing the the Dow the Dow fundraise, right? Uh, the the Dow creation event. Yeah, I this think. is the period where you could buy Dow tokens, right? 
Yeah, and yeah. and really mint DAO tokens. Yeah, right? where you could create DAO tokens. Yeah, correct. Yeah, sorry, correct. Cause, yeah, because you can and, buy DAO tokens today. Yeah, I, yeah. Somebody gave me one the other day or uh, a while ago. It was pretty awesome. Nice. So to fast forward a little bit, um, that crowd rate, like crowdfunding, crowd rise, um, ended up with one hundred and fifty million dollars in, yeah. in the treasury of the DAO. Um, and, way and more. Than anybody. More notable is 14% of all Ether in existence. Yeah. 14% of the market cap of Ether, which today is countless billions of dollars, you right. know, right. Um, <laughs> were in the Dow. At the time, that was only $150 million. But man, 14% of all Ether in existence was stuck, came into this thing. Right. And then I think it was June 17th, 2016, Friday, it got hacked. And, yes. and about a third of that was stolen in a number of hours. Yeah. Um, you were obviously on high alert at that moment because, you know, you, you were one of five guys at Slocket and Slocket created the DAO, even though the DAO was accepted and, and embraced by the entire Ethereum community. A lot of people, I think, were looking at you guys um, without getting like into the weeds too much on this, because we could talk about that ap- episode sure. forever. But just like, I know that like, uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitively, you've told me before that like, you felt more alive than ever in your life when that was going on. Yeah, yeah, it was an emergency, you know, everything was so by the second, you know, every second felt like an eternity. Uh, ch- refreshing scan, checking the chats, find getting information. And it was like very clear, like emergency response apparently is something I love to do. Uh, and, and so it was, uh, it was like, okay, well, we need to do this. We need to do that. Making decisions on what to do and who to talk to. And okay, we need to get everybody's keys, whoever made a split down, you know, these sorts of things. Like there's little nuanced uh, things that needed to get done. And so I got to play kind of a, a general like role of being like you, get these, talk to these people, you talk to these people, you know, like delegation and, and execution. Uh, and especially from like the social layer, whereas of course, other people working on the, the, the development layer, because as you said, only a third was stolen. So there was still like another 60, about 70% of the money was still in the DAO, which has a clear bug. Uh, so left Terrace and Jordy and a few other people were working on how to hack the DAO to get the rest of the money. Within a day, they figured it out, but we kind of decided to chill out, like wait. Um, and well, from my perspective, um, it's like I cared about my community, right? How do I, how do I make sure that the DAO token holders get as much money back as possible? Yeah. And uh, Vitalik, within hours, had mentioned a hard fork that we could just change the rules of blockchain which is yeah that that is something just for listeners you could put it to a vote that you could update the ethereum client server software to make it as though the dow hack never happened kind of i mean it's even more than a vote it's like it's really upgrading the, the client software and saying hey if you run this update and if everyone runs this update then this money that's locked in this wallet we're just going to make an irregular state change. We're just going to like turn that, oh, like, um, you know, $50 million. Let's just put a zero there and move that $50 million over to this contract yeah. where everyone with DAO tokens can get their money back. Yeah. Uh, 
and yeah. and and that was kind of like so so on chain you know the hack had still happened but we were effectively saying okay well like all of these all of these DAOs that have money in them let's just take it yeah let's take it and we'll do something else and and this is the the power of open source software uh we were able to pull that off i mean also there was so many there's so many cool things that happened there was DAO wars lots of DAOs fighting to attack the DAO and it got really messy kind of on purpose honestly so that we wouldn't need a hard fork and um yeah and so then we ended up with the hard fork and and uh we were able to take the money from the hacker and also from us because we had hacked the rest of the money and right. stolen it from all the other hackers too uh except for the main hacker so it was only like us and and the main hacker who had money uh, and then the hard fork took all of our money and took all the hackers' money and gave it back to Dow token holders, which yeah. is exactly what we wanted. Yeah, yeah, wild. But, but then, of course, Ether Classic happened uh, because the old software still existed. So you could, so all of a sudden, it was like a parallel universe created. And uh, one universe, there was the Dow hack and it, and the hacker and us. We still had all had the money. And another universe in normal Ethereum land where the money was taken and given to DAO token holders. And so this other parallel universe became Ether Classic and a bunch of Bitcoiners pushed to keep that alive. Yeah. And, and then, uh, so then we still had all this money and we had to figure out how to give it back to everyone. It was chaos. It was chaos. Yeah, I like, I like to describe the, the hard fork as like a, think about like a tree limb that grows in a different direction. And then you don't expect the limb to keep growing in that same direction after the branch. But in this case it did. And that's why we have Ethereum Classic and it's still the, it's still the original chain of, of Ethereum where the DAO hack lives. Whereas on the fork, it, it's like, it, like you said, it was a state change and, and, and you can just go get your money back. Um, so I was curious, uh, uh, when I wrote my book and, and you helped me with, with all of this detail in like um, 2019 or so, uh, I was trying to find a DAO attacker and, and the, the technology was somewhat limited at that time. And then Laura Shin has written a book now, um, The Cryptopians, where um, she seems to have gotten a lot closer because it looks like the technology got better and they were able to kind of trace some of the movements because all of this stuff is on a blockchain and it's all publicly viewable if, if you have the, you know, the bandwidth to kind of follow it all and figure it out. I'm just curious, like, what, what do you think of, of how things have evolved there and, and like the new information that's out there about the DAO uh, hacker and, and their identity? Yeah, you know, it's a really weird thing because like, honestly, the DAO hack is the weirdest thing because it's the only hack I've ever heard of where everybody won, right? The, 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 the DAO token holders got their Ether back and got 70% of Ether Classic back. Like they got more back than they lost in the hack. And the hacker ended up with all this Ether Classic too. So it's kind of like, who are the losers? Like Slocket lost. We never got paid. I mean, we were supposed to get a proposal from the DAO uh, to actually fund our project and ended up Socket as it survived kind of, but it never became a thing really. Yeah. So uh, like we lost, we were like the only losers. So, you know, I kind of feel like it's water under the bridge. It was like really early days. For me personally, I'm a very forgiving person. What can I say? Like, and I don't like jails or any of this stuff. So. I hope the if this guy who who uh, Laura Shin, uh, I mean he probably is the DAO hacker. Uh, Tony, I think it's like Toby AI. He 
he probably is the Dow hacker. Uh, and he's hanging out in Singapore doing his thing with lots of money. Um, so, um, you know, fine by me. Uh, he can do his thing. And, you know, we all learned a lot through through that Dow hack and the whole experience. And it made Ethereum what it is today. So, you yeah. know, if I could go back, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, everything is, you know, it, it got us to where we are today. And, and I like where we are today. That's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you as well is like, you know, the culture of Ethereum so well, and you've been there for so long. How do you, how is it today compared to back then? Like, obviously the community was a lot smaller. Um, you know, we talked about you being the mayor of Ethereum, because what I mean by that is like, you basically knew almost everybody because as the community manager of Slocket, you were getting everybody in the community involved and like, you know, you, you had to know them and all of that stuff. Now, um, five years, six years later, like it's so much bigger, you know, like it's, yeah. it's so much bigger. Like how, how are you, um, what do you think about that now? Like what, what's the picture for you in, in terms of, of the culture right now? Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, like you said, I was the mayor of a small town, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was the mayor. I mean, maybe, but, but, um, but, uh, Vitalik's the guy, you know, but, but, um, yeah, at the time I was really well connected and really, you know, I knew everybody and, and it was a small town, you know, and now it's like the U S like <laughs> there is no culture of Ethereum anymore. The culture of the U S could you really say that? Like the culture of LA is so different than the culture of some small town in Nashville, in, in Tennessee. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it, it's really not fair. It's like, yes, we all use solidity. We all speak English. We all use the same language. We're all kind of in the same network in, in the United States, right? Or we're all in the in the same network on Ethereum, right? But it's to say that Ethereum's culture is, you know, that I think that there's like strong conviction in the community around certain topics like proof of stake and, and these sorts of things. But there isn't, um, yeah, there, the culture is not, there is no Ethereum culture anymore. Is that like, is that a good thing for you? Or like, is that a bad thing for you? Or how do you like, uh, or is it just something that needs to happen because it's, you know, everyone's focusing on scaling it and making sure that, you know, as many people as want to use it can use it. I think it's a fine thing. You know, it's Ethereum is from at least the leaders in Ethereum. Ethereum is just a protocol, you know, they're, they're not so I have seen, um, and maybe this is like um, by design in some way, like uh, to be more resilient, there hasn't, there isn't like a lot of community building within Ethereum, you know, there's, they throw conferences and they, there's a lot of focus on the protocol, building this infrastructure and being pretty laissez-faire about how culture is built up around the protocol, which for better or worse has, has been work, has worked really well. I mean, that's way better than what happened with Bitcoin. And then they're like, no, we need maximalism. No, we need this, you know, and they're, yeah. they're pushing the culture very hard. And it, it makes me think that it goes back to kind of what Vitalik's genius idea was, was that I'm just going to build, I'm going to give you this thing and then you do whatever you want with it. Right. Like there's no expectations on top of it. It was sort of like, this is the base layer, whatever you can bring on top and make work, just go for it. So it's not like there were cultural prescriptions. I guess it was maybe that it was a smaller group of people, you know, at the beginning as, as would be, you know, obvious really the case. And so maybe there was a more of a sense of some sort of like unity or some sort of like identifiable culture 
Whereas like now you're saying it's more like the United States where yeah. I, I think the United States is made up of like six different countries that are actually, you know, just the same country. <laughs> Definitely. And even in within a small state, there's like, you know, in Washington state, like I was saying, I was going from between Spokane and Seattle. Spokane is very red. Seattle's very blue, you know, and they have very different cultures and very different expectations. Most of Spokane is like, anti-mask and you know a lot of like they're very and seattle is like lockdown hardcore you know and and that's in the same state in different cities uh the two biggest cities in the state uh, almost basically right uh and so so it's like um and i feel like that's where we're at where even in like like each protocol within ethereum kind of has their own culture but even within that protocol there's derisive uh you know stances on important issues and and uh, we all just have to work together to overcome these cultural differences and and uh, and really see conflict as uh, as an opportunity and, and uh, transformational yeah. uh, and showing that we are resilient to conflict and that we are you know conflict is a good thing it means we have diverse opinions yeah. and and that we can have this resiliency so it's it's um yeah it's it's really interesting the way things because yeah in in early Ethereum days it was pretty it was also chill it was also chill. Uh, all the cool people, I felt like all the cool people from from Bitcoin um, came to Ethereum and Dogecoin. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those were the cool communities. They were the, the nice communities with nice people. And it was like, like I wrote a really bad smart contract and Alex Bandesan came out of nowhere and was like, yeah, you know, this is pretty good. Let me show you how you can improve it because it's shit. You know, he didn't say that it was shit, but it was. And, and yet, like, if I put that in almost any other subreddit, because Reddit at the time was everything in crypto, right. if I put that in any other subreddit, I would have been destroyed. Everyone would have attacked me like, this is crap. What are you doing? What a waste of space. Don't, no one read this. This is not how you do things here, yeah. you know? Uh, so, yeah, and it was, it was just a lovey-dovey, happy place and uh, full of, like, unicorn memes and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, questionable fashionable uh, fashion choices um yeah just real quickly and but i mean the power of it though is also like what you're doing with giveth now that's your new project it's not new to you but it's what you did after slocket is um because of this kind of protocol and because of the the, the money you know um that programmable money and, and the way that ethereum works is you're working on giving communities the tools to like uh, step in for when governments or maybe charities aren't actually working and, and like incentivizing people to uh, to make like changes that are necessary on the ground um, with yeah. us, can you just t tell us a little bit about that um, and 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 you I called you or you called yourself last time we spoke um, a, a crypto anarchist and and that you're interested in overthrowing governments but not really overthrowing them just like figuring out how do we replace the, the services that governments can't really like um fulfill for people who need it yeah you know revolutions it, revolution is not the way like was there a smartphone revolution did we take arms to make smartphones better than you know and everyone start using smartphone instead of using like the flip phones you know the dumb phones yeah no it wasn't a revolution it was just an evolution it was like oh we made something better and now no one uses those old phones. I mean, some people do, of course. I have friends, you know, very privacy-centric friends that still use those phones. But like, pretty much everyone's got one of these in their hands. And it didn't take a, a, a war. 
And, and I think that's the way, you know, we can't just overthrow governments and then say, and then replace them with another government and think we solved a problem. That's not going to solve anything. We have to figure out how can we, like, in the end, what are governments actually providing? What value are they providing? Why, why are they so sticky? Because they're actually providing value. I know you don't, you may not think it, but man, these roads are pretty nice, right? At least, well, not here in Costa Rica, but in the States they are. And, and you know, uh, basically governments and nonprofits fulfill a non-excludable value. If you can exclude people from something, then you can create a business model around it. Think of a movie theater versus a movie in a park. Movie theater, you can sell tickets. You're you're, what, what's the value of a movie theater? Well, people are entertained by watching a movie, you know? But you can exclude people from watching that movie on a very nice big screen in a very nice room, you know? You can exclude them from that value so you can create a business around it. If you want to throw a movie in a park, you can have a really nice big screen. You could have like a really cool vibe. You could be serving drinks and be great. But why would people buy, buy a ticket? They can just walk in and sit there. It's non-excludable. But the value is the same. In fact, I would argue the value is more because there, it's like a community building opportunity. And, and people don't have to pay and there's something nice when money's not touching things, you know, there's, there's just higher vibes. And so like, there's actually value being created by that movie in the park, but the people throwing the movie have to ask for donations and it doesn't work. And governments now they're trying to provide movie in the park. They could use tax money, provide movie in the park, but how do they get the tax money? As I say, like, listen, give me your money or I'll take your house, right? Like it's, it's really not a clean system. The system it has huge issues. How can we build systems that can provide the same value, this non-excludable value, where uh, they're actually um, regenerative, where it's like the people who are creating that value are fairly rewarded for creating that value. And, and, and how can we create entrepreneurial opportunities where people can create non-excludable value? And I'm saying this from a very systemic level, right? People could start movies in a park and actually, um, you know, be making money for it. They can go pay their rent, you know, and more than movies in a park, we can take care of the homeless population. We can, you know, we can build roads. We can do all the things that nonprofits and governments do, but with a third, a third structure, a third type of system. And, and tell me, like, what is that? How, how so, do you, how do you pay somebody for helping like solve the homelessness crisis? It's the same way that Bitcoin works and Ethereum works. Issuance, issuing, moving from the like the like base layer of a business model where you have to take in revenue and then you have to um, you know spend less than your revenue so you take that profit and now people can pay their house right pay yeah. pay their mortgage instead of that actually using issuance. So if because it's if you don't exclude people you, you don't have customers so you don't you don't really have revenue but you can actually just print the money effectively. But now you have to, with the issuance, now you have to balance out with demand. So you create supply. How do you use demand to make uh, that supply valuable? Right. And, and that's the challenge. So instead of using business models, we use economic models and we use issuance and we issue tokens to uh, the, the group that is throwing the movie in the park, right? And the, the people who bring the projector and the projector screen, they all get some tokens, right? 
And now what, like, if you look at governments, like how are they really run? Like what, why does, why, why would Donald Trump and Joe Biden spend billions of dollars, billions upon billions of dollars to get a 400K a year job, right? Yeah. There must be some value in being the president that's not quite quantified in the, in the financial realm. And so it's really about playing with this qualitative value, which I would say is effectively the, the power to decide how public goods are offered to the community. And, and even though it's not quantifiable on a spreadsheet, the value is there and it's proven by, uh, by elected officials spending more money to have that power than they actually get paid in their job, right? So that value exists, it's just not easy to quantify. And so what I would say is now the people who are running the movie in the park, they get tokens, right? And they can sell those tokens to the people who want to decide what movies get played, which park does the movie get thrown in next? So you create this, now the people who have the tokens get to decide, yeah, you know what? I wanna see Wayne's World in the park down the street. Okay, cool, dude. Like you put, get, you want, if you really want that to happen, you better buy more tokens because no one else wants that. No one else wants that. So you're gonna need to buy a lot of tokens to make that happen. And so now you've created demand through governance actually. And this is the idea of a governance token, right? So it's to play devil's advocate, it's a little bit like selling tickets to a movie theater, but you don't get to choose the movie when you buy a movie ticket. And, and so there's, there's extra things on top of it as well. Yeah, it, it's more like buying tickets to own a movie theater. Okay. Right, because the, the owner gets to decide what movies are there. The owner gets to decide where he builds the movie theater. The owner gets to decide all of these things, right? And the, and the owner also gets this revenue. Now we're cutting out the revenue, but in the end, it's still, I mean, like just to be, yeah, like it's still basically like if you look at Amazon stock or any of these other kind of stock uh, things, the shareholders, like what happened with Elon Musk recently with Twitter, he bought a bunch of Twitter stock and said, yo, I want this. I want to own it. I want to buy more. I'm going to buy all the stock from everybody. Let's do this. Yeah. You know, and then he gets to control Twitter. Yeah. Now, that's not necessarily like what if Elon, instead of being Elon, was a Dow, right? And the Dow could buy all the shareholder stock and the Dow could decide how Twitter is run and the, and Twitter could become a public good that is actually like accessible to the public. They can have open debates instead of just Elon Musk or, or whoever runs it now, the shareholders that run it now in back rooms deciding what happens. We'd bring that up to the forefront and say like Twitter is a public good that people get to hear about how decisions are made and why and debate them and be part of the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I really want to see and, and the real goal of Giveth and Common Stack and, and Token Engineering and DapNode and BrightID and all of these things that, that, that I've helped found, IDEN3 and Hermes, and I've, I'm like a serial nonprofit crypto founder at this point. Uh, there's like, it, the goal is to create competing micro economies to provide public services. So instead of having a monopoly government that controls every public goods vertical and says, this is how it's all going to be. We go from the other direction. We go bottom up and we say, hey, who wants to start a road building company? 
a movie in the park company, a help the, help the uh, homeless company, but they're not actually companies, they're DAOs, they're economies with supply and demand models, and they're competing for people's interest, yeah. not only within their own sector to see who can build the roads the best and provide value to their community the best, they're also competing within the sectors, right? Do we need more roads or do we need, do we need to take care of the homeless? Like, uh, well, you know what, I'm gonna allocate my capital towards the homelessness because I think this is an, a bigger issue that we need to address. And so the roads might you know, not have as much capital as they need when the roads get better. You know, and and that's okay. That's great. Good. Or it's not a zero sum game. I mean, some people go for the roads idea and some for the homelessness idea, right? So it's like you said, there's that competition. And when there's choice, people can kind of put their money behind what they want to see made better in their community. Yeah. And and the dream is like, you know, if if we could actually outcompete the government to provide services that that the people actually want, and we could have public good startups. Um providing values that we used to lean on the governments to provide, then what do we need these guys for? You know, like, like they would just kind of like only be doing the things we don't want them to do. And they would lose legitimacy and, and uh, end up, we would just kind of have built a parallel society and have just shifted. And there wouldn't be this whole revolution or whatever. It would just kind of be like, hey, like we, we do national defense over here look there's an alternative now yeah check it out yeah yeah Yeah, we we do all we solved a lot of the problems that we need to solve ourselves without this structure and in a competitive way that actually breeds you know um like better ideas and and more uh yeah more innovation yeah that's a great place to leave it griff um thank you so much for all the time today uh fascinating i love talking to you uh, every every time i learn something new um and and yeah here's here's to everything you said and here's to give it and good luck man thank you so much for being here yeah thanks and if if anyone's interested in the side in these ideas you know um give it.io commonstack.org uh these are where i spend most of my time uh and of course the trusted seed and and all of these other groups uh, you can find us all on twitter uh, at commonsstack uh on twitter at giveth io on twitter and i'm at the griff t on twitter yeah i I will put all that stuff in the show notes for everybody who wants to just check it out so you don't have to um, remember that but yeah again (laughs) thanks so much griff it was great seeing you yeah thanks a lot man talk to you soon that's it for this episode of decent people thanks so much for listening Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.